Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Only, Entire, and Greatest Thing, the most important verse not in the Bible, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July the 1st, 2007. If your Bible has study notes, you'll see that some ancient manuscripts insert an extra verse in this week's Gospel at Luke chapter 9, verse 56. I think of this extra verse as the most important verse not in the Bible. At Luke 9, 56, some Greek manuscripts add a conclusion to the story which reads as follows, And Jesus said to them, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. As Jesus traveled to Jerusalem, he sent his advance team to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people there did not welcome him, writes Luke. Because they rejected Jesus, or maybe because of the Samaritans' ethnic hostility towards them, the disciples James and John exploded in rage. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? They probably spoke figuratively, not literally, but that's small consolation given their desire for revenge. Instead of rebuking the Samaritans who rejected him, Jesus rebuked James and John, who defended him. Then comes the extra verse that shouldn't be in the Bible. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. As of 2003, we had 5,735 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament, some of them bits and pieces of papyrus, some of them complete books. No other ancient text, Homer or Aristotle, for example, enjoys anything remotely close to this avalanche of manuscript attestation. When textual scholars compare, contrast, and cross-check Every last one of these 5,735 fragments of evidence, they reach an overwhelming consensus. Even though we don't have the original documents that Luke, for example, wrote, and even though there are many differences among those 5,735 manuscripts, the Bible that we read today is a mirror image of the texts as they were originally written. In effect, we read the real McCoy and not some corrupt approximation. Unfortunately for me, this unprecedented textual precision leads the experts to reject my favorite edition of the Bible. In the footnote at the bottom of my Greek New Testament, the editors assign this variant reading a grade of C. That's no better than how you'd feel about getting a C on a test. It means that there's significant doubt that the verse added at Luke chapter 9, verse 56, belongs in Luke's original. 
but I'm not so ready to give up. I'm actually glad that a later copyist inserted this gloss. It's like a one-sentence commentary of what he considered the gist of the gospel story to be, which is, Jesus didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And so even though the addition doesn't convey the original words of Jesus or of Luke, it surely communicates the authentic spirit or sentiment of Jesus. We don't know if Jesus spoke those words, but they clearly express the broader Jesus tradition about which there's no debate. They sound like something he would say. They have the ring of truth. For example, the authentic Luke 19.10 sounds suspiciously similar to my non-verse, which is one reason why textual critics reject it as spurious. In Luke 19.10 we read, The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. So too, John chapter 3, verse 17, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. There's even a similar and spurious textual variant at Matthew chapter 18, verse 11, where we read, The Son of Man came to save what was lost. And so the interpolation at Luke 9.56 might not be authentic, but its sentiment is authentic. When James and John invoked divine wrath on the Samaritans, they betrayed an attitude diametrically opposed to everything Jesus said and did. A few verses earlier, John tried to stop an exorcist from healing a person, quote, because he was not one of us, end quote. Luke chapter 9, verse 49. These zealous disciples transformed the good news of God's unconditional and limitless love for all people into the bad news that God had it in for them. The good news, as they construed it, belonged to them. The bad news was consigned to other people. And so, too, for many people today, religion is what Christopher Hitchin calls a force multiplier of tribal suspicions and hatred. And God is an angry tyrant before whom people must grovel in fear. But not for Jesus. As Pastor Rob Bell of Michigan wrote in his book, Velvet Elvis, the story of Jesus is good news for everyone not just for believers. And it's good news, especially for those who don't believe it. Every person without exception can say with the psalmist in Psalm 56, verse 9, This I know, that God is for me. It, Paul emphasizes divine favor expressed through human love in this week's epistle. The only thing that matters, wrote Paul, is faith expressing itself in love. You can summarize the entire Bible, he said a few verses later, in five words. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is nearly a verbatim quote from Jesus himself in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven who, in turn, had quoted it from the more ancient text, Leviticus 19.18.
Similarly, to the Corinthians, Paul wrote that the greatest gift is love, without which we're nothing but an irritation and a nuisance. Writing to the Romans, Paul urged the believers not to owe anyone anything, quote, except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Galatians chapter 5, verses 6 and 14. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Demonstrating divine favor to every person, rather than denying it to any person, validates any claim about the love of God. For both Jesus and Paul, divine love made human was the only thing the entire thing, and the greatest thing. The additional verse added to the text of Luke 9.56 is clearly spurious, but the authentic voice behind its tradition is unmistakably original. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And now for further reflection. In what ways do Christians today call down fire on other people, like James and John? Number two, why do you think we do this? Number three, meditate upon 1 John chapter 4, 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Or consider St. Maximus the Confessor, who lived from 580 to 662. Blessed is the one who can love all people equally always thinking good of everyone. For books this week, I review Calvin Miller, The Path of Celtic Prayer, An Ancient Way to Everyday Joy. Downers Grove, InterVarsity Press, 2000, 170 pages. This short book by Calvin Miller is not a technical study of Celtic theology, history, or even Celtic prayer. Instead, it's a practical manual that intends to help people deepen their practice of prayer. It takes its general inspiration from Celtic prayer and is not an in-depth study of the Celts. In this book, writes Miller, I hope to offer you some aspects of Celtic spiritual practices as a springboard that might enable your prayer life to reach new heights. And so after a short introductory chapter, Miller devotes one chapter each to six principles or types of prayer that he has gleaned from Celtic spirituality. Number one, Trinity prayer. Number two, scripture prayer. Number three, long wandering prayer. Number four, nature prayer. 
Number five, Lorica prayer. Lorica is Latin for a breastplate for protection. And then number six, confessional prayer. Miller tends to romanticize Celtic spirituality as a quote-unquote faith of great vitality and characterizes lackluster our modern habits of discipleship. But whether the past was so great and the present so bad is a debatable generalization. Also, in proposing a kind of prayer that can end our amputated feelings of separateness from God, Miller treads a thin line between offering yet one more technique as opposed to careful advice about a lifelong spiritual discipline. Nevertheless, I enjoyed his many references to and examples of Celtic prayer, and the exercises at the end of each chapter take the reader from mere theory to practice. Many people have lamented the ignorance on the part of the contemporary believers for our spiritual ancestors, and Miller's popular book, Aim for a General Audience, is a good place to begin to connect with saints who have gone before us. Calvin Miller, The Path of Celtic Prayer, InterVarsity Press. For film this week, I review Fast Food Nation from the year 2006. First, a warning. Watching the last three minutes of this film can lead to vegetarianism. Based upon Eric Schlosser's devastating book about the fast food industry by the same title, published in the year 2001, this fictional film never quite finds its focus. The ostensibly main character disappears halfway through, never to reappear. It's not clear which of the many subplots is the main narrative, but I still recommend the movie. When corporate hack Don discovers that there are more than chemical additive to Mickey's so-called Big One burger, namely fecal matter, he travels to the Uniglobe Meatpacking Company to find out what's wrong. As it turns out, there's a lot that's wrong. You'll find yourself back in Upton Sinclair's The Jungle of 1906, what with illegal immigrant labor on the cheap, animal cruelty, horrible sanitation, hazardous work conditions, employee abuse, pitiless corporate greed, and more. All to feed our fast food nation. You will never think about a Big Mac in the same way after viewing this film, nor should you. Thanks to this mediocre movie that nevertheless provides some serious social commentary. Fast Food Nation from the year 2006. And finally this week, for poetry, we've actually posted a blessing or a prayer from the 6th century Irish work called Carmina Gadelica. The Carmina Gadelica is a collection of prayers, hymns, charms, incantations, blessings, and other literary folklore, poems, and songs collected and translated 
by the 19th century Alexander Carmichael in the Gaelic-speaking regions of Scotland. He collected these between 1855 and 1910. The Carmina Gadelica. The love and affection of the angels be to you. The love and affection of the saints be to you. The love and affection of heaven be to you. To guard and cherish you. May God shield you on every steep. May Christ aid you on every path. May spirit fill you on every slope, on hill and on plain. May the King shield you in the valleys. May Christ aid you on the mountains. May Spirit bathe you on the slopes, in hollow, on hill, on plain, mountain, valley, in plain. From the Carmina Gadelica. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July the 1st, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.